Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and I'm here with a good friend and new co-host today, Dr. Stephen McIntosh. Steve, how are we doing today? Uh, doing well. Thanks for having me, Sean. Thank you to, uh, to the podcast and Bruno for uh, allowing me to uh, participate. Step in, step in Bruno's shoes here. So you, you've, you've uh, migrated from becoming a guest on the show uh, multiple times to uh, helping to co-host this in future episodes. So I'm um, happy to have you here. Uh, I've got to be honest, I'm, a little, I'm even more happy to have our guest today, <laughs> Professor, <laughs> Professor John Nolan. Um, Professor Nolan is the founder and director of the Nutrition Research Centre in Ireland, the NRCI. So Professor Nolan, welcome to the podcast. Hello, it's a pleasure to join you um, from Ireland tonight and um, looking forward to a, a nice discussion on, on, on the topic of nutrition for eye health. Great. So maybe we can dive in, uh, dive in deep right away and talk a little bit about you. <laughs> why, why ocular nutrition? What, what led you down this path? And maybe you could share that story a little bit. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm first and foremost, I'm, I'm a biochemist. So, you know, I'm trained in, I was trained in, in that area of um, science. And however, I had um, the opportunity to start a piece of research following my primary degree that was related to a disease called age-related macular degeneration, which you'll be very familiar with, of course. And um, what I liked about this opportunity was that actually working with individuals, working with people and doing, doing work that we could maybe change nutrition, change vision in real time for society um, was something that at the very early stage was um, very attracting to me. Um, and a lot of luck as well, I would say, you know, I got to work with, you know, some of the best ophthalmologists, um, vision scientists, and uh, what, what we've concluded on the back end of all of that is that to be able to do good research in the area of ocular nutrition, it has to be a multidisciplinary approach. So, you know, there was a lot of naivety there. It's 20 years ago now that I did my PhD. So I couldn't say that, you know, I always knew it was going to be ocular nutrition and I was going to, I suppose, if you like, become a specialist in macular pigments, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, today and why they're important. Um, there was a lot of luck. There was a lot of opportunity. But um, the practical aspects of doing research that in summary that could help uh, society was something that was of great interest to me. Oh, and that's and that's fair. Where did you do all your training? If you want me asking. Yeah, of course. So, so I did my primary degree in Ireland, in the southeast of Ireland at, at the Waterford Institute of Technology. And um, I began my PhD under actually um, a scholarship, which I won following my primary degree from an organization called Fighting Blindness Ireland. Um, very interesting connection because, and I didn't realize it at the time, but um, a very famous lady who, who um, you have heard about, um, a lady called Maya Doherty, who was the producer of Riverdance Ireland. So the very famous dance. She has um, a keen interest in this area or had a keen interest in this area because she had a family history of macular degeneration. So she funded um, a PhD program at, at our organization and I applied for it essentially um, successfully was appointed um, to do that PhD. And we working with ophthalmologists, as I say, and other scientists 
um, we really started to have some early discoveries linking nutrition and risk factors from macular degeneration. And as part of that PhD program, I applied for a Fulbright scholarship where I had the very great fortune to um, leave my PhD, move to America. And um, to, I went to, to Medical College of Georgia, where I did my postdoc work on, on the study of macular carotenoids. So it was it was an extremely fast um, evolution in terms of the, the field we were in, what we were discovering at that time. But for me personally, in terms of my own career, it was really, you know, the pace was was fast. We were publishing a lot of papers, uh, impactful papers and opportunities presented, such as, as I say, the Fulbright. And, and the, the Fulbright was a life changing experience for me because you grow up very quickly when you when you leave your nest of comfort <laughs> from home, which I did. So I think even beyond, you know, learning about, you know, all the, the additional kind of eye related topics and how to image the eye using OCTs. OCTs had only become popular around that time. Um, you know, I got to kind of get perspective on the research that I was doing. And I also figured out quickly what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. So I suppose the postdoc uh, research became important and successful because I was able to collaborate with people that were very good at doing other things. Um, I worked with a professor, um, one of the most famous professors in the field of macular nutrition at the time, Professor Max Snodderly. Um, he was the pioneer, I suppose. That, that he was the scientist that I looked up to throughout my PhD. And, you know, I got to work with him very soon after successfully defending my PhD. I'll never forget it. I, I defended my PhD on a Wednesday and I left Ireland on a Friday to go and start my scholarship. So that's it. When I say the pace was fast, I didn't have time to to really overthink about things. And I had the very good fortune then, as I say, to work with Prof Snodderly, Professor Stringham, Professor Hammond and others. These were well-known scientists in the field of macular nutrition, eye nutrition. And um, technology then just kind of allowed us answer questions that hadn't been answered before. So I suppose we, we were able to develop, um, you know, a critical mass around that area of research. And what I learned, um, my the goal that I had was to kind of always to return back to Ireland, which of course is where I am now. Um, and returning back to Ireland, I realized that you could do really good research anywhere in the world if you had the right ideas and I suppose the honesty of effort, that's really important. But collaboration was, was really important as well. So we kind of developed, if you like, a network of, of, of excellence in this area. And, you know, to kind of move through the story very quickly, I had we we competed for large international grants, European funded grants. We also had and continued to have um, enormous support from foundations, the likes of the Herod Foundation UK. And, uh, you know, we've been able to address really many important research questions. So. Yeah, it's, there's been lots of reasons that have kind of guided my career. But I will say, as, as, as broad as that sounds, I think the success of our research has been how focused we stayed on our research questions um, with the common goal of enhancing basic nutrition of the eye in a way to enhance visual functions and protect against age-related eye diseases. And being back in Ireland thereafter, I was able to establish, you know, infrastructure that was, you know, never seen before in this area of research. And also have a team of specialists 
the goal that we had was that we wanted to be able to, if we were studying these compounds, these macular nutrients, to measure them, you know, to measure them in food, to measure them in supplements, to measure them in skin, to measure them in serum, the taxi system, as I call it, the blood system, and then at the target tissue. And thereafter, we were really interested on focusing in on the visual functions that should be improving if we do right by those nutrients. And, and that was it. It was to test those type of hypotheses. But of course, we've had some very nice findings, provocative some, you know, along the way. But what I would consider uh, findings that have changed how we use nutrition in eye care and how we should use nutrition in eye care. And it gives a lot of hope for diseases like macular degeneration, but there's much more to it than, than just trying to fix a disease. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Well, Professor Nolan, uh, thanks for, for the background. And also uh, we, we want to get into some of your more recent uh, cutting edge work. And, um, but we appreciate you kind of getting us up to speed on the, the background and this topic in general. Uh, yeah. Would you mind sharing just a few of the, the most significant findings in the field of ocular nutrition uh, in the past decade, decade, maybe? So in the past decade, you know, a lot has happened in the last decade. I think for me, the first most important discovery was that this yellow pigment called macular pigment. So it's the macula, as we know, is this 4% of the retina um, that gives us over 90% of our vision. It's such a fascinating tissue. And, you know, this is the part of the eye, as you know, that gets sick if you have a disease called macular degeneration, for example. So the fact that nutrition was, it was highly concentrated there, one of the first major discoveries, I suppose, is how you actually measure that with, with, with accuracy and validity and repeatability. So measurement is, is, is always a, a common goal in terms of like, you know, addressing these questions. So the, understanding the various techniques in terms of how we measure it. And, and where we've landed now, of course, is that we can, we've moved away from psychophysics, subjective testing into image-based technologies that are, you know, robust, valid, re reproducible, useful in the clinic and so on. And very useful, of course, in the research setting. So I suppose validating the measurement and understanding how concentrated these macular pigments are. Remember, from the three, from the 700 carotenoids in nature, we have these three carotenoids, lutein, zeaxanthin, and a key discovery to answer your question over the last decade has been, in my view, the importance of mesozeaxanthin in how we can enrich the macular pigment. And, you know, it's everything from the work of Paul Bernstein's laboratory out of Utah that shows that when we look at, you know, the antioxidant potential, so, you know, how these pigments are working, how the antioxidant potential is far greater when meso is present as opposed to, you know, when meso is not present, mesozeaxanthin, um, you know, that's really, really important. When we look at this clinically, which is essentially my job to, to run clinical human studies where we test various interventions, we see that using mesozeaxanthin is crucially important. And we had a paper um, published that showed that about 15% of the general population have an atypical macular pigment profile. So what does that mean? We're talking, you know, so let's talk, we need to explain macular pigment a little bit more maybe. These macular pigments are these dietary pigments, so we're not born with them. Um, if you do not eat fruits and vegetables, you have no macular pigment. If you eat good fruits and vegetables that, have, that are bioavailable in terms of carotenoids, you can increase your macular pigment. But really, 
what we're kind of seeing is that general society is highly deficient in these pigments to begin with. Stepping on from that, though, a discovery has been that there's about 15%, as I said, of the population that have these atypical central dips. So they have this deficiency in macular pigment, which is the best way to explain it. Instead of having a mountain shape protective pigment profile, you have a volcano. So you have this depression at the center. That's kind of trivializing the reality, but that's a good way to explain it. And what, what I hypothesized was that this is likely due to a deficiency of this carotenoid known as mesozeaxanthin. And we, we need to talk about that a little bit. But essentially, the idea thereafter would be that if we supplement it with mesozeaxanthin, could we fix the problem of this deficiency of antioxidant potential, this depression, if you like. And connecting all the dots, when we look at who in society have these depressions, these dips, these atypical profiles, another paper that we had was that it was uh, individuals at high risk of age-related macular degeneration. So that was easy to do, actually, because you see, if you look at a sample like we did of a thousand people and you look at within that sample, who is high risk of the disease? So we're not talking about people who actually have the disease. We're talking about people maybe in their 30s, 40s, 50s that have different risk profiles. And if you categorize those uh, individuals, those participants like we did, the people with the dips and the depressions and the deficiencies in the macular pigment remarkably were the people at very high risk of age-related macular degeneration. So that was people um, obviously with a family history of macular degeneration, that slightly older section that we studied, and the cigarette smokers. So we connected the dots between the three most important risk factors for the disease and having this issue, which I hypothesized was connected to a deficiency in mesozeaxanthin. So... We did the interventional trial where we used lutein and lutein didn't fix the problem. Lutein is a really important carotenoid. It's, it's found in our diet. It's really important for the macular pigment as well. But what I'm saying is that a lutein diet or a lutein supplement on its own is not going to help those individuals that have that depression, that central dip. I mean, when I say some of the work was provocative, I think I, what I mean by that is there was a, there was a, a feeling or an understanding or a scientific commentary around at the time that, you know, all you need to do is consume lutein and we're going to make mesozeaxanthin at the back of the eye. And, you know, not to get too sciencey, but the biochemistry of this is very clear. Lutein can be converted to mesozeaxanthin. That makes perfectly good sense. And I believe it does happen, by the way, at the eye, but I believe that it doesn't happen for everybody. So in other words, a lutein supplement on its own or a diet that's just lutein based is those individuals are still going to have this deficiency. Why? Still unanswered question, probably due to an enzymatic deficiency, um, which is linked to genetics in some way, shape or form. So thereafter, the question was, can we fix the problem by going direct to the source, getting mesozeaxanthin, using it as a supplement? And remarkably, when we supplemented those individuals that had these dips, we were able to rebuild um, the total amount of pigment, both centrally and across the profile. So, you know, I've gone a long way around to tell you one of the important findings, but it's just so crucially important. Essentially, if you have a research hypothesis like we did, which is if we enrich these macular pigments with supplementation or with dietary nutrition, um, we can reduce risk of macular degeneration or we can enhance visual function. 
you know, you should only go after that research question if you've really understood the likelihood of success. And success in this case is if I give a patient a supplement, will they get the desired result of rebuilding their pigment or enriching their pigment? And once we were able to establish that and essentially discover the importance of the three carotenoids, lutein, zeaxanthin and mesozeaxanthin, I was then empowered to write a major grant, which was funded by the European Research Council. And this was the CREST study. And this is, I'll kind of end on, on this piece in terms of the last decade of important discoveries, because that was the question. We, and I said in my grant application that I had identified a nutrient that was deficient in society, mesozeaxanthin, and that carotenoid along with the other carotenoids, when provided in supplement form, I hypothesized would give everyone a better visual function and would enhance visual function in patients with age-related macular degeneration and potentially reduce their risk of going blind. So that was a really kind of strong claim, but it was one that we had built up a body of evidence before we went to answer the research question. So in other words, we knew what formulation we thought we could be successful with, we knew what measures of visual function we should be doing in these population groups. And that's that's really important, that second piece. You know, when you do a piece of research like we did, what's the objective? You know, it, it's kind of not sensible to say, I'm going to stop or fix a disease. It's very difficult to measure that. Of course, you can image the retina, you can do OCT, you can grade the disease and you can follow that, but you're going to need to follow people for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, in my view, to really address that important question. So where I think the research has been successful has been where we focused in on assessing visual functions in these population groups. And to do that, you have to have a measurement stick that's sensitive and appropriate. And this is something that I'd like to say to eye care and optometry and ophthalmology in particular, you know, Living in a world of visual acuity is a world where we're missing the majority of what's actually going on in visual function. So if you want to understand the quality of vision, you need to do much more than visual acuity, as important as acuity is. So, for example, we know contrast sensitivity is a really good indicator of visual function, how the patient feels, for example. So we build all that idea into our research questions. And long story short, in the context of a level one double blind placebo controlled trial, when we do this type of really good intervention over 12 and 24 months, we did improve vision in the general population. And that's something that I care, uh, you know, thankfully now optometry is starting to really embrace this, that, you know, early prevention, you know, let's not just live in a world where we're refracting and that's their job. It's much more than that. The job of primary eye care and optometry is to get in front of this. And, you know, every patient that comes into an eye care practice has the opportunity to do better. But the, one of the challenges we have is that, you know, it's, it's training in, in optometry. Optometrists typically are not trained a lot about nutrition and why macular pigment is important. And, you know, I love speaking to optometrists about this because they're brilliant at optics, you know. So if we link, think of these pigments beyond the antioxidant piece, which is the sunscreen bit that they do, this antioxidant, this protective piece, they're also working inside our eye where they're providing this customized optics for the patient. There's nothing else you can do that's going to custom, customize 
the use of light at the retina more than what enriching the macular pigment can do. And this all comes back, of course, to this visible light spectrum, short wavelength blue light. We hear a lot in eye care about UV light, UV light. Of course, UV light is short wavelength, high energy. We need to filter that out. Cornea and lens typically does that. That's why cataract lens replacement is UV as standard. I got that. But we have this visible light spectrum incident on the retina. And we have a lot of challenges thereafter for the retina to optimize the use of that light to give us the beautiful sensation of vision that we have. And we've evolved as humans to accumulate these pigments at the macula for that exact reason. And what I want to say here is that we macular pigment enrichment or supplementation is not and should not be about fixing a disease, macular degeneration, for example. We have to understand that these pigments are working for us from the second the mother breastfeeds us. The yellow in the, in the colostrum and, the, and the, the breast milk that we see is because of these beautiful nutrients called carotenoids. So nature wants us to have these nutrients. We don't have enough of them. They're really important for the macula. We've discovered what they're composed of. We know how to supplement it safely. We know what that does for the patients when you do it. So the challenge now is education dissemination and that's why i congratulate you know your wonderful podcast to try and have these types of discussions because only by doing that can we in, inform and thereafter empower eye care to make safe decisions that are informed by science that really help the patient right that yeah that, i i think you're totally right there um yeah part of the research process is sharing that new information, right? And I think you're right to uh, highlight the, um, the way that your, your Crest trial fundamentally changed the understanding of treatment and promotion of ocular health, including mesozeaxanthin and uh, the triple carotenoid formulas. Um, it's kind of interesting. We still see, and you mentioned, you know, the training, we still see a lot of products out there too, and various clinics that might still use products that, that exclude the mesozeaxanthin or that uh, aren't based on the most up-to-date research. Um, so I think you're totally right. And I think that's, that's great. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm so happy too, to be involved in uh, podcasts like this and other media that can disseminate this information in a way that might be more available to, you know, practitioners who are, you know, in the clinic all day and might not have access to the articles and also to patients too, you know, it's uh everyone has to take some ownership of their, their own health too, and get involved. And I think it's, it's great to be, uh, to be sharing that information. So thank you. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and thank you for kind of, you know, echoing the point and, and adding to it. I think it's, I think it's important. And, you know, I get how difficult this is for eye care and for a very busy optometrist and an ophthalmologist. And the first thing, and particularly in ophthalmology, you know, they, they're very busy. So they, it's hard to have the time. And the first thing as a doctor is do no harm. So, you know, maybe there's, there's a, they feel that it's, you know, for whatever reason, because of the ARID study, for example, which is now, you know, it's, it's old. It's, it's old data and it's really important data and it brought us so far. But the science has evolved very much from that um, and beyond that. So, you know, why would a eye doctor 
that's make that's investing time in having this discussion with their patient, not make a recommendation relating to the three carotenoids. I I don't know. Um, I think it just comes down to this confidence and this, you know, the, the comfort in, in terms of why, why they would do that. What I would say back on that is that the retina and the macula chooses to have it. And, and you know, if, it, if, if the body, if this tissue that gives us our vision craves this carotenoid, and if those that have a deficiency in it have worse vision or are more risk of a disease, and we have a safe way to replenish that. It's just the most basic concept ever. Um, and the education piece is, you know, let's go back to ARIDS for a second, the ARIDS study, which will be well known. You know, the education piece is, you know, that, that was a very big study. And in medicine, big studies, long follow-up is the holy grail, you know. Um, but scientifically speaking, there's so many... Um, weaknesses to the ARIDS design. You know, ARIDS 2, for example, had no true placebo group. They didn't actually measure vision, you know, beyond um, maybe standard acuities. Uh, you know, as I said, the placebo group, everyone in, in the intervention was giving a formulation that had been shown to have a positive effect. Um, the failure to include mesozeaxanthin in that experiment. And let's talk about the elephant in the room, you know, the in the interest by, you know, organizations um, that want to sell lutein. And that was why that was used in that experiment and have a patent on the use of that, for example. So, the, you know, so there's all of these things. And and I don't mind talking about this because I think we have to, you know, those who know me or will have seen me at, you know, conferences and co-proved events, I'm I'm often accused of being the, you know, there's a the formulation we tested was a product called um MacuHealth. Um, and I'm told, oh, he works for 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 MacuHealth. I don't. I'm a scientist that works for the government in Waterford. I use that formula because it was the formula that we had tested. It was the first presentation of Meso. The stability was was brilliant. The bioavailability was fantastic. Why would I not use it? And if you look at, at you know, and, and for full disclosure while I'm on this, if you look at, at the disclosures and all the publications, these, these programs and these projects um, were funded by competitive research grants, primarily the big, the Crest studies, for example. You know, we have had funding from organizations at our facility from philanthropy, yeah, and, and, and so on. But we're totally independent in terms of the, the research designs, the research testing, the statistical analysis, the peer-reviewed process, which, which is entirely um, important for our reputation. So uh, I, I think we need, to, we need to look at where interests actually are. And, you know, I gave a lecture only last week in, um, at an event in Texas. Unfortunately, it had to be online again. And it was entitled, the most expensive supplement you'll recommend is the one that doesn't work. And, you know, this was a COPE, COPE lecture and, we, and I did this and I went through a lot of the misconceptions around, you know, the science in terms of, you know, mesozeaxanthin being important. Yes, no. You know, you see some crazy claims that it's 
it's it's it's toxic or it gives you brain damage or it suppresses the uptake of lutein. And these are just white paper commentaries. They're not scientific um, experiments that have a, a question and an answer. So I don't want to kind of go down this road and make this discussion more complicated because I know that the consumer, the patient and the eye doctor, he or she is going to try and do everything to make the right and the most informed decision. But and that's where I think regulatory comes in, you know, to be crucially important that um, we we work hard to to live in an evidence based world, evidence based recommendation on scientific experiments that have been validated and tested. And the good news for eye care and for for patients is that there's been so much really good work done. And, and going back to this this point of this this education, and um, we have to continue. I mean, part of my goal now, I've been blessed to get to 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 work in this field and to to work with the people I've worked with. And you know, we've published over a hundred and seven, a hundred and eight peer-reviewed scientific papers now. And I'm not saying that to boast, but that's a lot of science, you know, and it that's a lot of commitment by people you know a typical proper paper that that gets published may be the back end of you know a couple of hundred thousand euros of an investment from a, a grant someone's life for five or six years that their time commitment you know data collection data analysis you know um data interpretation submission to a journal peer review critique assessment and eventually you get to say something if it's meaningful that's what peer-reviewed science is but on a white paper, you can write anything. So one of the messages I'd say to eye care is like, don't overthink this, but think about this. And what I mean by that is live and make, if, if an organization comes into your clinic and says, oh, I have the best supplement and you should use it because say, great. Can you show me the scientific papers that, that, that substantiate the claims you're making? Because false claims are dangerous, you know? And the other thing I'd say to, to eye care is that, you know, one of the really important pieces here is, is the, has the product been tested in an actual study? Not piracy, not, not, not products where the ingredients are sourced, you know, from, you know, an unstable or degradable uh, carotenoid source that it's not being protected in the right way or formulated. And you may have seen, I've, you know, I, I recently had a piece of information um, from our analysis of supplements kind of documented on, on the news actually in Canada, where whereby, you know, you see over 65% of the supplements that are out there um, are not standing up to their label claim. And, you know, I think regulatory, you know, thankfully Health Canada and others are working hard now, I believe, to, to try and really tighten up there. And I think people like me that can measure these and organizations that can measure carotenoids, this whole effort from supplement certified is crucially important as well as we move into the future. So in summary, what I'm saying is, you know, this is not complicated. These nutrients are really important for the macula. They're really important for vision and for various diseases. And maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, try and if you if you invest the time in nutrition and supplements, understand about the various supplements that have been tested, the exact formulas, not just, as I said, copycat formulas, the exact formulas and what what results do they show and thereafter, how, they, how can they be implemented? As you know, one of the messages I've given you today is these nutrients are so important for all the patients. 
it's not it's like what I like to say is it's you don't wait until you're sunburned before you put on sunscreen so it doesn't make sense so the the protection that these nutrients can give us are throughout our life during our life and if we do it in the right way we can get a better quality of vision a better quality of life today and protect our vision into longevity of age where where we're, you know we have to we have to change what we do in eye care because already i mean you see it better than me we can't cope this industry cannot cope with supporting people that are losing their vision because of diseases like macular degeneration and so on. Um, we have to change what we do. And if we keep doing the same thing, add into that the aging population, the growing population, it's, it, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't bed well for the future. No, I think that's, uh, you know, you're obviously um, very passionate about, about disseminating this information, which is, uh, you know, which is fa- fascinating, which is, which is great. We're having you on the podcast. I have a couple of, um, questions that, um, you know, touch on this, uh, a little bit tangentially, but is there, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, macular pigment, uh, I guess quantitative macular pigment and age, is there any, uh, relationship between the, I don't like the maculars, the maculars affinity for these pigments as people age, does something change with age that causes this reduction? And even if people are, you know, eating a, you know, a good healthy diet and trying to uh, get these uh, naturally. And I guess the follow-up on that would be, um, you know, you mentioned that having, you know, good, uh, you know, whole fruits and vegetables in your diet, this is the source of these uh, macular pigments. So for people who, you know, um, you know, do crazy things like I won't admit to doing, but maybe have in the past, <laughs> like a, like a carnivore diet for a period of time. Yeah. Does that actually, uh, you know, potentially put your uh, eye health at risk? Yeah, um, absolutely. So there's a couple of questions there. So I'll try and I'll try and address them um, stepwise. The first one was what happens with age that may meet result with a deficiency and. Absolutely. So, you know, let me remind you that we have this issue called oxidative stress, which is not something that happens because we're bad people. It's the cost of doing business with life. So a a retina that's developing has a lot of oxidative stress. So it's metabolized. The cells are using oxygen to divide and survive and so on. And this happens throughout our life. And we normally have this kind of equilibrium, this antioxidant defense mechanism that can contend and cope with that. Okay, but as we get older, what happens is two things. We have more oxidative stress than we normally do. So age is a direct um, increase. It increases oxidative stress and our antioxidant defense mechanisms drop because our nutrition may change, you know, for different reasons. We may be able to eat less. Um, And to your extreme point, and we've actually published this, a colleague of mine, Professor James Lockman, actually, um, you know, deprived himself of, of plants for, I think it was something like 12 weeks. He lived on meat, sausages and so on. And he totally depleted his carotenoid levels in his um, blood system, which again, as I say, is the taxi system. And very quickly soon after his macular pigments became um, totally um, decreased. So he, he had a sort of reduction in the macular pigments. And um, so that was an interesting experiment that he did on himself. But um, 
so yeah, there's this thing with aging, as you say, it's, 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 we're not supposed to live as long as we do. <laughs> That's the first thing to say. And our systems break down. It's that eight, the reason why my hair is going gray and I'm getting wrinkly by the day is because of oxidative stress. So this happens outside our body. It happens inside our body. The retina uses more oxygen than any other tissue in the body. So it makes sense that we do everything we can to optimize the antioxidant defense mechanisms there. So that's, that's really important. The, the, set, the last piece relating to your question is that, so look, let me be clear. I, the, the building blocks here and the starting point, whether we're a young, healthy individual that wants to have supervision for performance or whether we're you know, middle-aged or, you know, get, or getting into our later years, um, you know, Nutrition is the starting point and plant-based, we are what we eat. Fruits and vegetables are key, okay? I just watched a documentary myself last night. Um, it was uh, about the centenarians out of uh, Italy in Sicily. And, you know, they their diet was plant-based, basically. That's what they did. And, you know, this, this effect of this antioxidant in a cumulative fashion is, is, is really, really important. So, so over a lifetime, but we have some challenges, don't we? Because, you know, plant-based nutrition, you know, how good or bad it is. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be very direct here. Plant-based nutrition on its own is not sufficient anymore to give us the protection we need, not just in our later years, but during our life that, I think that there's, you know, an absolute need to find alternative ways to bring these carotenoids in, into foods. So we call this, you know, adding it to the foods, fortify the foods in some way that we can enrich it. And one of the reasons for this is actually quite interesting. The plants themselves have carotenoids to help the plants grow. So plants live in carotenoids and they help the plants for similar reasons, photosynthesis, for example. So a plant that has produ produces lots of carotenoids does so because it's trying to survive in the environment it's growing. But when we produce plants as we do with good farming, and I'm not talking about pesticides or anything like that, I'm talking about standard farming where you make it as easy as you can for a plant to grow. We're producing lots of food, lots of plants, but it's devolving in terms of its carotenoid nutritional value because it doesn't need them anymore. And this is, we've seen this, I think that some of the data in over 60 years of data shows that, you know, when we eat, for example, um, I think it was a broccoli or spinach or something like that. I think it's like 43 portions more you need today than you did 60 years ago to get the same total nutritional value. So, you know, it's, it's very difficult. And add into that, you know, the impact of environment, CO2, global, it's all playing a major role in terms of this depression of carotenoids. So we have a problem. We need to feed the world. We need to farm, but we are producing crops that do not have as much nutritional value, and particularly with respect to carotenoid score. So the solution, in my view, comes from how we actually can source these, purify these. And this is why, you know, when I say I'm Mr. Supplement Promoter, I am. You know, and that sounds a bit dodgy, but really when you step back and look at what it is, it's actually taken value from nature. So the, the, 
you know, the, the formulations we've tested are formulations out of industrial organica out of Mexico. So these beautiful flowers out of Mexico, um, the marigold sempasuchos, and they have, we can extract the carotenoids from them where they're purified. They're put into a very stable uh, formulation. It's really important, by the way, the carotenoids are formulated in oil-based formulas because this stops them oxidizing. And in, in some of the reports that you've seen from me recently, you'll see that some of the unprotected powder-based formulas degrade, you know, almost to zero within 40 days of shelf life um, if they're not formulated correctly. But the point I'm making is we can source these carotenoids from nature. They can be formulated and provided to society to help society. And, you know, I did an experiment in Ireland as part of the Irish Longitudinal Study on Aging. It was a 30 million euro research experiment funded by um, the government and by the um, an insurance company, Irish Life, I believe. And there's, this, oh, there's a million research questions in this aging project, but I was in, involved and in charge of the eye aspect of this. And, you know, we had some really fascinating um, discoveries uh, within within that experiment and basically we we started to see that when you're measuring these carotenoids and you correlate them with you know measures of visual function and cognitive function that the people in that really large sample you know have these um, those are high pigment levels you know outscore everyone else in terms of their visual functions and their cognitive functions so we're just learning so much about, you know, um, the carotenoids even today. Um, but the formulations that we can source, the stability of them, you know, how we test them, how we measure vision and function, all crucially important. I think that uh, leads us into nicely to um, a question I wanted to ask was, what are the most important unknowns in ocular nutrition right now or, or current um interests, for example, maybe the, the dose response relationship with some of these uh, carotenoids or the, the ratios or even use in other treating other diseases, like you mentioned, cognitive functions. So can we see a future where maybe these might be applied even within eye clinics like where I am, but to treat things maybe beyond the eye? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and to go back to that kind of Irish study, I kind of made half the point, not the full point. I think it's important that I make the full point. And that is, you know, when we did a cost benefit analysis on, you know, if we were to provide, you know, a supplement of these nutrients to, to the general population over age, say 55, we would have saved the government millions of euros relating to the cost of blindness by not doing that. So the point I'm making here maybe is that this is affordable prevention. You know, this is not a drug where you're going to be charged thousands of euros, like the injections to treat macular degeneration, for example, are $2,000, $3,000 per injection per eye, maybe, you know, 10, 12, 15 times a year. You know, that's not the solution to this problem. But I, your question is really important. You know, what else? What other areas? You know, I spoke today about macular degeneration and the general population. So carotenoid enrichment in the general population enhances visual function for you, for me, for anybody. Why? We're making the retina healthier. We're, we're allowing it to do its job more efficiently than it would before. 
you're optimizing the use of blue light at the macula, an area, remember, where with no blue photoreceptor cones. So, that, so that's one thing. But the better way to look at this in eye care is not to try and connect it to a disease. It's, it's, it's across the populations and across the diseases. So what do I mean by that? So if I look at glaucoma, you know, some of the big issues with glaucoma are, you know, photostresses, glare disabilities, carotenoid intervention resolves that. You look at cataract. What happens with a cataract? We're taking out the protective filter that the eye has created in the front of the eye, maybe 50, 60 years old, and we're putting it in with a clear lens. And now the back of the eye is going to be flooded with wavelengths of light, short wavelength, 460 nanometers, so on. That's going to really, really shock the retina. And the data is clear on this. Cataract surgery is a major risk factor for age-related macular degeneration. And we know why. The reason why is we're now exposing the eye to lots of light that it didn't have for the last 30, 40 years. So it makes perfect sense in the context of cataract um, that we optimize the tissue at the back of the eye. And remember, the back of the eye is doing about 85% of the work in terms of vision. But eye care spends a lot of time dealing with the front of the eye. And there's an opportunity here for optometry to really, as I said, to use my expression, and get in front of this and to enrich the nutrients at the back of the eye to give optimal antioxidant potential and optical filtration potential. So, you know, I've just mentioned AMD, glaucoma, cataract, you know, um, there's these rare diseases like MACTEL, Paul Bernstein has done some amazing work there, um, macular holes. We've seen in MACTEL, they're totally deficient of um, macular pigments, but supplementation is helpful in, 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 in that population group as well. So it's not that this is like a, you know, something that, am I saying something that everyone should do? It's something that everyone should be aware of. You know, I take macular carotenoid supplementation every day. I take macular health every day, um, along with a, an omega intervention, omega-3 fatty acid. There's a two, inter, two supplements that I take every day. Um, because I think the benefits that they're going to give us in this new world, and let's talk about the new world. I'm speaking to you now, it's a podcast, but I'm in front of my computer as you are. There's lights shining from all all angles. I've been at my computer since eight o'clock this morning, nearly full 12 hours, you know, and that's not normal and that's not natural. So we have to find other ways. Um, and I believe macular nutrition and optimization of macular nutrition. And then if you go to the other extreme around, you know, this other new place we are in the world where, you know, you look at sports, the Olympics has just finished the course and you look at the impact of these nutrients in terms of like high performance vision related activities. So pilots, military, golf to go into the sport world, um, you know, baseball. There's been so much really good work done in these areas that enrichment with these carotenoids enhances vision, enhances contrast sensitivity, reduces glare disabilities, um, enhances visual comfort, all of these things, which makes perfect sense. So, you know, I believe that macular pigments and carotenoid intervention is one of the major discoveries in eye care since the invention of spectacles. And, you know, there's a, co a previous colleague of mine, I, I, I'm paraphrasing um, his words there in fairness, but I think it's important that I echo it because they're, they're really important. So, 
you know, there's great opportunity now for eye care and for optometry. So, I mean, logically kind of putting all this together, it makes, it made me to make the whole flow makes a lot of sense, right? You're, you alluded to the fact that, you know, the foods that we eat now are just uh, depleted or deficient in a lot of, a lot of nutrients, not just macular nutrients, uh, macular pigments, a lot of nutrients. So, you know, we can't get these pigments from whole foods. Even if we eat a ton of fruits and veggies, we can't get them to the same level we could have, let's say hundreds of years ago. Um, so there's a certain need for supplementation. Do you think that, uh, like, is it safe to say that, you know, a, a formulation like Mackey Health, maybe you said Mackey Health, maybe there's some other ones out there. And if there are that you think are uh, worth mentioning them by all means. Yeah, cool. um, but do you think that um, the, you know, it's something that uh, eye care providers, I don't want to say should, but it could safely recommend to just about everyone, or if we say just about every adult, um, yeah. because I think that, you know, on the education side of things, uh, you know, I say there are let's say they're ophthalmologists or optometrists listening to this podcast or just well-educated patients as well. So, okay, well, what, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to recommend? I'm hearing that meso is important and, uh, and lutein zeaxanthin as well. What, like, what am I expected to do? And, you know, is, is you know, is this pretty much risk-free? It's a very long yeah. winding, no, no, it's, so, a, uh, it's sort of a question, but maybe you can just comment on that briefly. No, it's a good question. And, and my answer, my answer hopefully will, will put clarity on some elements of why I'm so pro particular formulations. It's for the exact reason you say, I want the eye doctor to have safety and comfort in his or her recommendation. And that's why, you know, you know, one thing to say is mesozeaxanthin you can't get from diet in, in adequate amounts. It's, it's in some fish, shellfish, fish skin and so on, but we're not going to get enough mesozeaxanthin. It is the case that if you consume lutein, that you can convert to lutein, but we know the issue I explained that this doesn't happen in everybody. So there's a need, I believe, to supplement with mesozeaxanthin. But the, what we've seen is that because the mesozeaxanthin scientific data has been so important, You've had organizations essentially, you know, try and copy um, that formulation. And I think that's a good thing. I, I promote the, you know, I want loads of this stuff out there, but we can't cut corners. You know, we can't cut corners in terms of quality. So I have no problem with any organization promoting a product, but they need to do the work in terms of the formulation how stable it is. It sounds like a basic assumption. You know, is it stable? Is the consumer, the patient getting what they pay for? So you, you have to, you can only prove that by proper evidence-based scientific studies. Is it safe? You know, so going back to the MacuHealth, I now have 10-year data on intervention with, with clinical pathology assessment on all safety aspects. This is so safe. There is no, con and I can tell you, if there was any contraindications, I'd know at this stage based on how long and how concentrated we've been using these supplements. So safety, that's really, really important. I also like the MacuMel formula because going back to this recommendation, um, you know, other formulas that overcomplicate the intervention or the supplement, you know, you, there's this whole discussion about zinc, right? 
I see there's a big discussion about this in Canada, zinc or no zinc. Well, zinc is important. It's an essential toxin. So what that means is essential that we need to have certain amounts, but that's a, something, zinc is something, is an antioxidant that we can get certainly enough from standard diet. That's where carotenoids differ. So what I'm saying here in a roundabout way is that the simplicity of a triple carotenoid formula is where the success has been in my view. And that's not disregarding, you know, the co-nutrients that ARIDs use, you know, but those, the different being is you can get those co-nutrients from basic nutrition and good nutrition. You can't get enough of the carotenoids and you certainly can't get mesozeaxanthin. So, you know, I do think, however, and again, I'm going to say this again, I'm going to be direct again. It's not okay anymore, in my view, for a trained eye care specialist not to be in a position to make a recommendation that that's not informed by the science and therefore does not understand the importance of the three carotenoids. I don't think that's acceptable anymore um, because the science is done. And the safety is done, the bioavailability, how long does it take? You're not going to get a result with these interventions overnight. It takes, we have to fill up the reservoir, which is their entire biological system, our blood system, their target tissue, skin. Um, you know, and what I'll say, and it's kind of maybe answering an earlier question, which I probably didn't get to, is that we know now as well that it's not just enhancing the macula and their, therefore visual functions and, and protection of vision. We know that the amount of pigment that you have in your retina, in your macula, directly correlates to the amount of these carotenoids in the brain. We know that patients with Alzheimer's disease are deficient in carotenoids. We know that patients with Alzheimer's disease are deficient in macular pigments, which is a biomarker indicator of brain nutrition. And we're just finishing a, a major program this year in Alzheimer's disease where we've been in, doing two years of intervention with, with the, the triple carotenoids and omegas. So that, that's exciting, um, that data is common. We know in a really large sample of the population that those, as I said already, those with high pigment levels have really strong cognitive functions. We know in the general population that if I supplement with these carotenoids, I can enhance the memory and attention capacity of you and me today. But, you know, it's a lifestyle change. It's not a silver bullet. It's not a cure. You know, it's something that we should do in line with the other things that we should do, like be healthy, exercise, have a good plant-based diet, balanced diet. It's part of those. And the education piece is, is allowing patients and doctors understand the value. And in informed cases, where the consumer, where the patient, and where the doctor feels that it's the right thing to do, we now have a solution that is the right thing to do. And what we want to police against is, and I don't believe for, to be honest, that organizations, you know, that are failing in this regard, that are providing supplements that, you know, are not passing label claim, for example. I don't believe they mean to do that. I don't, I, th I don't think they understand you know, my whole life has been working with carotenoids and measuring carotenoids. So we understand how challenging it is to do this. So taking advantage of the peer-reviewed studies and, and companies like MacuHealth that have 
you know, being able to successfully commercialize that. And, and again, for disclosure, I'm, I don't work for MacuWealth. I don't own MacuWealth. I don't own any supplement. I'm a scientist. And I, yes, I'm totally biased towards the triple carotenoid intervention because my experiments and my outcomes from my experiments have told us that that's where the success has been. And it happened to be this formulation. So I put my reputation on the line to say to eye care, uh, eye doctors, that if you try this and if you embrace this, it won't let you down. I have never seen a patient that that has come back and have had no value in this in some way, shape or form. The challenge for eye care is how do you measure it? You know, you can't measure carotenoids um, accurately in the clinic setting at the moment. It's too expensive. You know, it's, it's um, too time consuming. Blood extraction to measure on HPLC is not going to work. You know, there are some technologies where you can scan carotenoids in the skin. They're very useful. Um, but take, take trust from the peer-reviewed science that shows you if your patient complies to this, they'll get the result. Blood increased by 10 days, tissue by three months. It'll be better at six months. It'll be even better at 12 and even better at 24 and 36. So that's, that, this is this lifestyle change, this longevity piece that we need to work towards. And people may say, oh, you expect me to take a supplement for the rest of my life. Yes, I do. If you want to have a healthy macula and the best chance of reducing risk of age-related diseases like macular Yes, I do. And I understand there's a cost to that. And this is where policy and government and industry and everyone that's involved that has a stake in this. And I, I, am a, I have a stake in this because I'm the scientist along with so many other brilliant scientists that have had the value of being able to look and see how important this is. It's been absolutely underutilized. This is a primary piece that can enhance the quality of vision in the patient population. And isn't that the job of the eye care specialist? Well, that's exactly uh, the kind of message I think that's that's productive to to share. And it's it's really great to hear somebody with conviction to um, you know put out the message repeatedly and I know you've, you've probably said many of these things to uh, the eye care community before and may have felt like it uh, it uh, may have landed on deaf ears in some senses but I think it is getting through and people here in Canada anyway are, are uh, very excited and I think um, elsewhere as well and we hope to see a future where maybe technology might be in in place in the clinics too where as you mentioned uh, macular pigmentation could be used as biomarkers for systemic levels of carotenoids yeah. and how we might be able to um, further further our role in health promoters and prevention of disease. Vis-a-vis -vis this um, situation that humans are in, it's, uh, you know, you touched on some important concepts in this conversation about ocular nutrition. We talked about carotenoids a lot, a bit about omega-3s, but there's kind of philosophical points about it too, you know, our age, like, why do we get these, um, why do we have some of these deficiencies and how we co-evolved with foods and how they've devolved their content of carotenoids through artificial selection and so on. Yeah. Um, you know, it's pretty complicated stuff. And this is what makes it challenging too for, for patients. They sometimes, there's so much information mm -hmm. and sometimes there's some 
practitioners participating in the cutting edge, and then there's some who are holding on to maybe previous data. And there's different costs too. They go to the store and they see all kinds of products on the shelves and, you know, powder form, gel form, different cost points too. Yeah. And uh, like you mentioned, there might be slight differentiation between products in the formulation or um, uh, the doses, the ratios, the omega-3s too. You know, we see in dry eye, we recommend EPA to DHA three to one, but then I know your, your work on cognitive function suggests more DHA or, you know, there's, right. there's just a lot of information surrounding uh, nutrition and patients uh, or people in general, when they go to the store and they see a lot of these different products out there, it's, it's hard for anyone to make sense of it, but it's great that uh, you mentioned about the work that you did on the regulations and uh, it did create some positive discussion here in Canada. Congratulations on that. It uh, was featured in the mainstream media here. And I think everyone uh, saw it on their, their phone on, uh, you know, the, on the news app. So um, can, you comment, can you comment a little bit more on some of those findings and share them uh, you know, with us once more? Yeah. Yeah. And again, in your question, you're, you're raising some really important points. You know, one thing, just listening to the question or the comment is, I'd say, you know, really, when I go... I like to make this comparison. When I go to my hygienist, um, you know, at the dentist, I want the hygienist to tell me what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong, how I can improve, and what can I do? What do you have that can, can help me with that? I don't want the hygienist to say to me, well, go to the store and get something. I want them to tell me that this is going to work for you because, you know, so it's kind of a, a trivial comparison, but it, but it's important. So my, and the point I'm making is the patient should have the support of the eye care specialist say, this is what I want you to do. When you let the patient, you know, leave and go down to the pharmacy or to the health store, you know, we don't know what's, what they're, what they're purchasing at that point in time. And as I said, you know, the most expensive supplement that they will buy is the one that's not going to enrich their macular pigment if there's a need to do so. So that that's that's one thing in terms of the regulatory. You know, this was an eye opener to me, no pun intended, you know, and I learned this. I learned this really by mistake as a researcher, because if you think about it, just like maybe the eye doctor or the consumer, you know, when I was in my research studies, and I was sourcing the carotenoids, I made an assumption that I was getting 10 milligrams of lutein or 20 milligrams of lutein or whatever the case may be. And that was a mistake because when our technologies were good enough for us to really separate the carotenoids, to quantify them with accuracy, we knew exactly what we were dealing with. And in one of the very first experiments I ran with the three carotenoids, you know, it was actually with the, the Macu Health formula, you know, 15, 16 years ago. It wasn't in an oil. And six months into the experiment, we because we were able to measure them, we saw that there was a, that they were, you know, degrading. So they had to, and in fairness to them, they got rid of all of that product, all of it. And they came back 18 months later and we redid the experiment. And in an oil, it was stable and we learned so much. And it was a costly learning, but one of the most valuable learnings. 
And then another discovery, almost by mistake, I remember doing a lutein intervention compared to a mesozeaxanthin intervention, a triple carotenoid intervention. And what we saw, guys, was that in the lutein intervention, when we looked at the bloods and we were quantifying the carotenoids, we saw that the bloods also had meso in those just given lutein. And my initial response was, we need to have a meeting with the scientists, the, the chemist that did the analysis. I, I had, it was in my head, we'd either mixed up the supplement or there was a mistake with the measurement and we I made them redo everything. We got the exact same answer. And what we discovered, I had a discussion with um, a, a gentleman, Dr. Alan Herod, who unfortunately died last year. And he said to me, did you test the supplement? And Dr. Herod from the Herod Foundation, um, he was the, actually the, the inventor of the Cambridge dice. So we collaborated and have collaborated for many years. So when we went back and tested the supplement, we saw that that lutein supplement that, that we were using actually also had mesozeaxanthin in it just wasn't being declared. So the, these were two major points from this kind of whole supplement certified piece that kind of said, well, hold on a minute, all is not what it seems here. And then when we looked deeper, we published a series of papers, Alfonso, one of, um, my friend and colleagues, scientific colleague, fantastic scientist, you know, and other colleagues, uh, we did analysis of all these supplements and we started to see that some very basic trends here. You know, if the supplements are not protected from oxidation in oils, they're going to um, degrade. And then you see some companies, and particularly in Canada, you know, I see some companies making outrageous claims about bioavailability and stability with absolutely no proper scientific evidence to back up. Um, and when we looked at that, those particular supplements, we saw, as I said, they were degrading extremely quickly. Um, and that's just not okay. And that's where I believe regulatory needs to step in and say, you know, all these organizations are making so much money on selling supplements. And this is the kind of bad feeling that eye doctors and maybe some patients have, oh, this is snake oil kind of thing. And, th and this can only be fixed if regulatory steps in and insists upon quality standards around label claim, around stability, around scientific testing of that exact formulation, you know? Um, so it's not that I'm against any company or any formula or anything that anyone's trying to do, but, you know, we need to protect the doctors and the patients, most importantly, from mistakes and from bad formulations and formulations that haven't been tested. So, you know, it was interesting because I saw the motivation behind uh, all of this was that I, I saw on, um, I saw one company promoting Canada very heavily, you know, their product and essentially plagiarizing all of our science and misrepresenting our science, okay? Um, you know, handpicking half sentences from publications and so on. So looking at the, that particular product and seeing how poor it was in terms of stability and quality, you know, I felt that there was um, a need to, to, to just kind of be honest and say, look, this is not correct because I, I want to protect the doctors and I want to protect, as I said, most importantly, the, the patients. And it's a difficult 
difficult enough decision. And the, again, my message is evidence-based, not white paper. You and I today can make a pretty flyer and say, you know, formulation we create from a marigold is the best because we think so. But, you know, that's not okay. It, you know, products that are doctor recommended need to have an evidence base related to stability, safety, efficacy, how well does it work, how bioavailable it is, and so on. Um, and going back to core science and core principles, if we do that, you know, doctors will have much better results for their patients. And, and, and that's really, really important. Well, this is, uh, you know, I'm going to have to be honest that I think of all the episodes I've, I've been involved in the podcast, um, this is, I believe, the first one that's <laughs> convinced me to like go and actually just change something tomorrow. Uh, I honestly, going into this episode, episode, I didn't think about, um, you know, the idea that, hey, I'm going to want to, you know, take these triple uh, this triple crop carotenoid formulations for you know my own condition, which is retinitis pigmentosa. Um, but uh, it seems to be you know <laughs> a takeaway actionable um, message um, you know that I'm going to uh, going to uh, make waves on. And no offense to Steve because he has brought these things to my attention <laughs> before. Um, I think just because I've known him for you know, almost forty years that. Uh, um, just another you know, one of uh, just another one exactly just another one of his, <laughs> of his, of yeah. his crazy crazy ideas but uh, no no I think this is no I think this is really uh, informative for the audience for myself included um, so uh, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to chat with us I feel like we could go on for hours and hours and hours here and um, but I think that maybe we, there would be room for for doing a round two in the future we can come back to you with if you'd be open to that we can come back with you uh, you know a whole arsenal of uh, uh, of other follow-up questions you know and, it would be my uh, pleasure yeah. it would be my pleasure and i'm sorry if i went kind of long-winded on some of the answers but it's just so important and that we have these types of discussions and in your own case you know against St. Trudy evidence-based there's not enough work in rp being done in my view um everyone is looking again you know at every way to try and fix this problem totally. And I'm not suggesting for a second that we can say that carotenoid nutrition is, is going to help, but you know what? I think you should try because, you know, it's not going to harm. And it's, it's, there's lots of things that we'll do, which will be a lot in our lives, so which will be a lot more expensive than this and a lot yet less useful. In summary, nature wants us to have these nutrients from the second we get good food from a, from our mother. And that's the starting point. And, you know, we will come back and talk about this. I think, you know, the whole Darwinian evolutionary survival of the fittest, you know, optimizing the macular pigments from that perspective, we're there from day one to stay alive, catching the fish or not. It comes back to those basic principles of vision. So that's very deep, of course, to end on. But, you know, this is really nature's solution to to the aging problem. Um and vision problem and we it's we have an opportunity now to change what we do oh for sure no this no this is uh this is great and yeah i don't mean to suggest that there's a ton of data out there for rp but like oh. you said it seems to be it, you know the the risk reward certainly 
uh, favors uh, testing it out. So um, maybe we can wrap up on that note, but I'd just like to thank you for, for participating in podcasts. I think uh, the, you know, I can speak for myself and, and Steve and the audience um, that this is uh, really good information and we will do our best to disseminate it to, to the masses. So thanks again for participating. My pleasure, gentlemen. Congratulations. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.